0: I love that Nina prayed specifically for patience for the teachers. Like, it couldn't help but laugh a little bit. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, they're going to need patience. These, these kids are raring to go. Uh, hey, you know, today we're starting a new series together that I, I, I personally am very excited about because there is a natural invitation for us to kind of ask those questions about the God that we just sang about and ask how can we follow him? How can we walk in the way that God has made for us as his people. Last week Paul introduced us to the idea of, of pressing on, which in the Greek shares the same word as persecution, right? Uh, persecution is, is an action we can only take if we have an, an object or a target or a goal that we are, we are pursuing, that we're chasing after, that we're trying to to to, to, to kind of hone in on and, and put some weight and some heat on. But it's and so it's it's something we pursue, but it's it's driven by this deeply held passion and purpose. Out of his love for God and, and his zeal for the the, or the 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 Jewish faith, Paul persecuted people of the way, people of the way of Christ. Right? He 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 stoned and and, and prosecuted and put in jail some of those followers. He was known, he had a reputation for being a man who persecuted followers of Jesus. Well, in the same way, pressing on, as Paul talks about in the New Testament, is a life of pursuit with a, a goal or a target in mind. Your life that you live, this is probably one of the deeper matters of our lives, some that we actually think about, others of us, myself included at many times, I forget to even consider or think about, why, do I, why am I living my life the way I'm living my life? Why do I do the things I do? Well, for Paul, in thinking about pressing on, he's talking about that life purpose. He's talking about considering the reason for why we live the way we do. And, 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 and so it's this pressing on, this pursuing of a goal or a target in mind. Now, I think it's interesting because the gospel told through the lenses of Paul's life it is a, a transformation from a posture of persecution to a posture of pressing on from a a posture of of persecuting and wanting to hurt and and punish people to a pursuit of following after someone and wanting to become more like and and live in the person's way that they're pursuing. His life went from passionately and persistently persecuting people, say that 10 times fast, who, who had left the religious life of Judaism from that to passionately and persistently pursuing Christ Jesus and following him in the way. There's an irony, by the way, in Paul's calling. You know when he meets Jesus on the way to, the, to Damascus? When, when, when Paul is suddenly blinded and what does God say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that becomes that moment of transformation from when Saul is persecuting people on the way of Christ to pursuing the life of Christ and in the way of Christ. As followers of Jesus, simply put, we are passionately and persistently pursuing him, pursuing Christ. And I do believe that 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 purpose gets lost in our lives. And I'm not faulting anyone, by the way. This is not a, a statement of judgment. It's a reality that the spiritual battle we live in this world is one of conflicting purposes that are, that are trying to take hold of our heart, that are trying to win the day in our soul. But as followers of Jesus, we bring ourselves back to this purpose time and time again where we are passionately and persistently pursuing him and following after him in every area of our lives. Today we're going to begin this new study in the book of, of Mark. Because I, I want us to dwell on this idea of the way of life that Jesus invites us to join him on. So feel free to turn to Mark. It's, uh, if you're using the Bibles that are in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 837 of our Bibles. It'll be on the screen. You're certainly welcome to pull it up on an app in your phone or on a tablet if you have it. Or if you brought your Bibles, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark and we're just going to look at the first eight verses of, our, uh, of, the, of the book today. You know, it's interesting. Mark is a, a, a gospel, probably one of the earliest, or if not, it is the earliest telling of the story of the life of Jesus. But it's told and written in a way that it was retold orally, narratively. O- almost like you're going to get this, first this, then this. It's a very quick read. That's why it's the shortest of the gospels. But it's also important because I think we pick up along the way some the deeper meaning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me Let me pray for us, actually, before I read the passage, because I want to pray that God's Holy Spirit would do a work of equipping us to passionately and persistently follow after Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, because it's not just a textbook. It's not just some really popular ancient document. It's not just some historical recording of history that we can rely on. It's the very word of truth. It's the the words breathed out from you, Lord. Lord, we pray that this living and active word would have its way among our hearts. That today your spirit would transform us as we hear what you have to say through the life of your son, Jesus, as told to us by Mark. We submit ourselves to you, Father. Have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, when we go about telling a story or the history of something, it's always good to start at the beginning, right? But, but what exactly is this the beginning of? What, what is Mark saying this is the beginning of? Of? right? Yeah, it's the gospel of Jesus. But but what does Mark mean by gospel? I mean, I think if we talk about the gospel here in, in the church, oftentimes we might say, oh yeah, well those are those, those passages that we could read about in Romans that tell you about, you know, man's sin and God's salvation and story, the story of redemption. So we would say the gospel is these four passages in Romans or, you know, we, we have different ways of talking about the gospel. But In my own experience, I feel like the gospel is still some sort of vague idea in the church. It's hard to pin down, to nail down what exactly is the gospel. It takes different shapes and forms. People can talk about it in a different way. A few moments ago, I just said the gospel uh, according or through the lenses of Paul's life. So what exactly is Mark saying this is the beginning of? What kind of gospel, what kind of thing is going on here? See, so the, the word gospel refers to the giving of a good report. Very basically, it, 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 couldn't, it doesn't have to be about Jesus. It, it, it's a word that can be used to tell a very good report, a very good announcement to be shared with others, right? And so at, at its core, the gospel of Jesus is the announcement of some really amazing news about Jesus. It's kind of like uh, pizza nights in our house. I, I, I could shout to the kids, come downstairs for dinner like I do every night, and, and they'd be like, okay, it's dinner again. Or I could tell them some really good news. Hey, we got pizza. It's hot. It's on the table and ready to be eaten. And what do you think their response would be? It'd be a much different response. They'd be like piling down those stairs, pushing each other out of the way because my kids, like their father, love pizza, right? By the way, how long, was there a bet on how long it would take for me to talk about food once I got back in the pulpit? Three Sundays. Actually, I probably even talked about it sooner. I just didn't realize it. Anyway, the point is, the value of the message is found in the good content of the message. The gospel doesn't mean this is going to be some bad news. It means this is going to be some particularly good news, something that's going to be encouraging, something that's going to, going to excite us, give us hope. And, and, and here's the thing. In, in the church, if you've been around the church for a while, man, it is easy to lose sight and to remember that the gospel is good news, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. Like, and maybe it's not just thinking about living in the church. Living anywhere, you hear a message over and over again, and if we're not attending to that message, if we're not thinking on if we're not dwelling on and abiding in that message, it's very easy to lose sight of the meaning and value and significance of that message. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. And what makes it such good news is who it's about. So the gospel of according to Mark isn't about Caesar or, or Pilate or the chief priests of the temple, but, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, again, if you've spent time around the church, the way we sometimes use the names attributed to Jesus so frequently, and even at times carelessly, can lead us not to think much of them. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We, you know, we, we hear that. We, we, we've talked about it. We've looked at passages that, 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 that bring it up. But, but what I want us to just slow down and consider is each word holds significance. Right? Like we, we live in a day and age where, man, there are just so many words coming at us, flowing through our ears, through our eyes, right? So much content, so much. But, but. When Mark says that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, each name that he attributes to Jesus is significant. The Greek word for Christ is Christos, and it means anointed one. It's referring to not just a chosen one, but to a royal figure, a king, right, who's been anointed to reign over a kingdom. It's also a word that's used in the New Testament to refer to the Messiah. So, so it gives us this sense that this is a royal king who is expected to, to save his people. He's a chosen one by God to be a savior. But Mark doesn't just refer to Jesus as the anointed one. He's not, he's not like Saul from the Old Testament who becomes the first king of Israel. He's not like David or Solomon who are, who are anointed kings He's someone more than that. He's more significant than just another man who's been chosen to to lead God's people in the Old Testament. See, Mark also calls him the son of God. He attributes to this Jesus from Nazareth a divine identity. Now, I I wanna challenge us to think and and consider this to not let our familiarity with the Bible or religion or or these words which we've heard before kind of glaze over us. Mark is uniquely connecting Jesus Christ, the chosen King of God, with the title of being the Son of God, this divine human king, to come and be a king over his people. He's God himself. We're going to get to the words of Isaiah the prophet in a minute, but in seeing Jesus fulfill the promise of God through Isaiah, as, as announced in our passage, Mark is essentially proclaiming that this Jesus is Lord. He's God Almighty. He's Yahweh. This is not just an anointed king, a chosen prophet, a uh, religious leader. For the people of God. He is God himself, Yahweh, who's come to do something very special. See, packed into these names of Jesus is a library of truths about the majesty and the might of who this man is and of his life. Jesus is a much anticipated warrior king who's been anointed to do something very special. I love, um, parents, maybe you will be familiar with this, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a great book, parents. If you haven't already gotten something like this for your kids, I I would highly recommend it. I just love the way that uh, the author tells the story of Jesus and the Bible for us. The author's name is Sally Lloyd-Jones. This is not, uh, you know, the ESV. This is not translation of the Bible. This is someone who took the Bible and tells the story of the Bible two children through the lens of Jesus's life. And I love the way she writes about this much anticipated warrior king. Listen to how she writes kind of in the introduction to it. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Well, the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some mistakes, and sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're just downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is, it's true. See, I want us to understand that the gospel is an amazingly good report of God rescuing his loved ones through his chosen king, Jesus. That's what Mark wants us to see here. This is not just a historical biography of Jesus' life, of the things that he said and did and, and walked around. He came with a purpose, he was sent with a purpose. And so we recognize that this Jesus who shows up alongside John the Baptist is not just another man, he's God's Christ, he's God's chosen anointed king who's come to save his people, and he's God himself. Now, in, in the verses that follow, Mark combines some Old Testament prophecies to tell us something about what kind of king Jesus is. So if you can, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3 with me again. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So this sounds like this is a quote of Isaiah, but if you go back and read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, you'd realize that some of that is there. But that's not all, that's not really all attributed to Isaiah. There are other people that, that have said things that Mark is pointing back to. It's given to Isaiah because Isaiah's, passage is pointing to this voice who will proclaim, who will go ahead of Jesus and say some very specific things. See, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, Isaiah absolutely says the bit about the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But God's promise to send a messenger comes from Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, what these passages have in common is God's promise to spend to send a special messenger at a very specific time. In the life of Israel, in both these times, the the people of Israel are in bondage. They're in in exile to a foreign nation. And they're there because of their own disobedient heart to to turn away from God. And then they were conquered by these foreign nations. And now they're they're kind of squandering away in exile. And yet God promises to send them a rescuer to redeem them out of exile, to to save them from their bondage, to redeem them back, just as he redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. In other words, God's plan of rescue, to to rescue his loved ones uh, like he did from uh, slavery in Egypt, is a rescue that he does time and time again until finally and completely we meet this Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Read Exodus chapter 23, verse 20 with me. God says this. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. See, by quoting this passage in Exodus, Mark isn't just saying, hey, that's a really cool passage. I want to remind you of what God said there. Mark is connecting this angel that God had promised to send with this Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's saying this is the... The very same one, the ultimate one that God was preparing and promising to send from long ago. He's saying that this Jesus is sent from the Father to lead and guide his people, much like God sent his Holy Spirit in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, to lead his people in the wilderness up out of slavery, out of bondage to the Egyptians. And Jesus is that angel that was sent to conquer the enemies of the people of God. Similarly, in in Malachi 3, verse 1, we read this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Again, the context of God's word in Malachi is that the people of God are, are in exile under the Persians. Life is miserable. Locusts have destroyed their crops the wicked are flourishing while, while the, the righteous are suffering. All that to say Israel is in need of a conquering warrior to come and to redeem them out of exile. And in both these places, when God makes this promise, he's signaling an end to the exile, both in the nearness of their, their historical context, but also ultimately a promise that w- would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the very opening of the gospel of, uh, of Mark the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the good news that God's promise is being fulfilled. I think it's, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where, 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 where Paul says that, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Here it is. Here's God's plan, His promise plan unfolding to do a work of rescue and redemption in this world. Now, if we take these three passages, we get a pretty good understanding of what kind of king God had promised to send. Not just what kind of man, what kind of person, what kind of of, uh, judge, you know, Old Testament judges, how they came and rescued Israel when they were in need. God had a king in mind to accomplish some very specific purposes. This would be a king who would guard and guide his people on the way of God. King Jesus is not just a king who sits on a throne, but a king who will guide his people, who guides you and I, who guards you and I in this world. Israel was hoping for another exodus out of bondage and slavery into the wilderness where God comforts and cares for his redeemed people. And this is exactly where Mark takes us next in the passage. Right? Israel's expectation is we're gonna be rescued and taken out into the wilderness, and God will lead us away. And that's exactly where Mark takes us next. See, the wilderness in the scriptures is absolutely a place of trial and suffering, as we're gonna see next week. But but it's also a place where God declares his salvation to his people much like he promised he would. He declares his comfort and care and provision, much like he provided for the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the land that God had promised for them. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 3 reads this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the lord's hand double for all her sins a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god see this voice this voice that that whose words provide comfort and reassurance of god's salvation this voice in the wilderness pointing to and proclaiming this king this coming king is john the baptist Mark connects this Isaiah prophecy with the life of John the Baptist, who stands beside the Jordan River proclaiming this news to people. And it's why immediately after these verses in the first chapter of Mark, we're told that John appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But here's the thing. I know sometimes, especially around Christmas time, we make the connection of who the voice is, but more important than who the voice is, is where the voice is and what the voice is proclaiming. See, there are a number of things that Mark tells us, tells his listeners, that place the context of John the Baptist's ministry and his message square in the place of an Exodus theme, right? Right? See, in the first place, John's in the wilderness baptizing people in the Jordan River. Have you heard the name Jordan River before? If, we, if we've read uh, Old Te- the Old Testament and the story of Israel, the Jordan River is the river that God leads his people to cross through on their way into the land that he'd promised them. It's a place of crossing from exile into promise, into fulfillment of promise, into to the, the wholeness of God's kingdom, right? Right? And so John stands there beside the Jordan River and he's proclaiming this message prepare the way. I'm sorry, he proclaims this message that God is coming, that the exile is coming to an end, that God's promise is about to be fulfilled. Secondly, Mark tells us that the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem, all the people of Jerusalem, went out to John. Where? In the wilderness. There's this subtle little nuance where we see, just as the people went out from Egypt into the wilderness in exile or sorry, in, in, in the exile, or the, the, the bondage to slavery being ended and the, being brought out toward God's promise and His rescue and redemption from, from slavery, so God will bring His people out into the wilderness, where He signals the beginning of the end, the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue and redeem his people finally and completely in Jesus Christ. You see, in, in Mark's eyes, that's exactly who John the Baptist is. He's the voice of one signaling this promise coming true, the, the, the God's rescue and redemption being fulfilled through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But more than where this voice is proclaiming this message, the what of the message makes God's plans to save people even more clear. In in verse 8, John tells his listeners beside the Jordan River, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's ministry has always been to point to someone mightier than himself. He says in the passage, after me comes one who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not able to even stoop down and untie. But though the one who comes after John is mightier, their two ministries are still intimately connected with one another. One points to the other, right? The the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins by water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. See, baptism, and we say this when we celebrate baptism here at Trinity, is an outward act signifying an inward change has taken place. In other words, there's not a change that's happening in that water when we submerge someone under the water and bring them back up. It's signifying a change has already happened, and that change happened inside a person's heart, in their soul, the very core of their being, right? The very center of their will. See, originally, baptizo was the word used to describe someone taking a cloth and, and dipping it into a dye. It may have gone in white, but when you pull it out, it's purple, The color, the cloth has been transformed. It's been changed. It's made new in its color and formation, right? So really, John's ministry and message was all about pointing to someone mightier than he who was able to offer something new, a new way, a new work of transformation in the lives of his people. He was calling people to this place of repentance where they turn back from this this life of sin and offense and to God again. And so the people's response in agreeing with John of, uh, of, of rejecting the ways of this world and saying yes to God's way, of saying yes to the work of forgiveness that, that can only happen as we confess how we've gone against God and how we want to be back and stand before him and embrace his love for us, after that confession and repentance of sin, John would baptize in the water, signifying this change, this transformation that's happened within their heart, their desire To walk in the way. But the baptism that Jesus offers is a transformation on a whole other level. You may remember when in John 3 when when he's talking with, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and and Nicodemus wonders how it's possible for him to receive eternal life, to have life eternal with God and not be separated from, not be exiled from God any longer. And and Jesus says you have to be born again, and, and Nicodemus is like, how can I do that? And Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit. In other words, you must be born from above. You must be born in your inward place, that, a, a work that only God's spirit can do. You can't do it. No, no amount of good deeds or best effort on your part will accomplish this. It's a work of God's spirit in you to, to create this transformation, to be baptized. You may remember there's God's promise through uh, Ezekiel, right, was to remove the people's heart of stone and to be given a heart of Flesh, this new beginning, this new life—it's—it's a—it's a a new work of transformation. See, this—this is the Exodus that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to offer the world. It's an Exodus not out of bondage to some human leader or power; it's a—it's a bondage to our slavery to sin and to the darkness in this world, and into a new life in Him. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's what the Holy Spirit does, church. When you you put your faith in Christ, when you believe in this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and believe that his life is, he is the one that, that the scriptures say he is that he, he does accomplish that work that only he can accomplish. When we believe in that, God's spirit does a work of transforming us, of dipping us into the dye and bringing us out a whole new creation. We have been transformed from death to life. And so the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the beginning of God's mighty work of redemption and leading his people Out of slavery to sin and death. Church, our king has come. Right? We're not not talking about a king that once lived. We're not talking about King David or King Solomon or King King Saul or whoever. We're not talking about these historical figures in the past. We're talking about a king who has come and sits on his throne and reigns today. That has meaning and significance. He's not some human king, he's a divine God king. He's a king who who suffered on our behalf to buy us back from sin and death. He's a king who promises us an easy yoke and a light burden if we follow him. He's a shepherd king who provides rest and nourishment for our souls as we trust him and obey him on the way. He's a king who isn't repulsed by our sin. When we may look inward and be ashamed and embarrassed by what we see in our hearts, God isn't like that. He's not a king. Jesus is not a king who's repulsed by that. Instead, he's a king that promises to remove that sin as far as the east is from the west. In other words, completely from us. But maybe before we get too excited and where we'll close this morning, before we get too excited about this idea that this divine Warrior, shepherd, king has come, is here, reigns on his throne now. Before we get too excited about that, I think we have to ask ourselves a question. And here's a question we really can be asking ourselves every day so as to not forget what we're about. The question is can I follow? I think that's probably one of the hardest things for people to do in our our corner of the world is to follow. We love our independence. We love our autonomy. We love being able to, to pick our guy to lead the way and say, that's the right way, that's the wrong way. We don't like to follow. I mean, you may disagree with me, But just sit with that question for a little while. Can I follow? Can I follow this king? This is not a question of capabilities. I'm confident we have the ability to follow Jesus as king. This is a question of our heart. It's a a matter of your will. Will. It's a matter of of you being able to say, I will submit myself to him as king. I will surrender my will. It's a matter of when push comes to shove, choosing his way, the way, as opposed to maybe an idea of what I think the way should be about. See, I think we like to believe we can follow the king, but I think it's a lot harder than we think. Can we... Can we entrust ourselves to the king? Think about that. We have a hard time entrusting ourselves to someone else. We have a hard time sharing some of those deeper matters of our hearts with other people. We're afraid of their judgment. We're afraid of being embarrassed or ashamed by them. We're, we're afraid of being let down by them, right? We have a hard time entrusting ourselves to other people. Does that transfer over into our relationship with Jesus? If, if he's truly king of my life, can I entrust myself to him? Can I speak to him of these things that I think that I that I think are hidden deep down inside that no one knows about? Not only can I entrust myself to the to the king, but can I submit to him? Right. I think it's easy to talk about. I think it's hard to do. Can, can you trust that the king sees the whole kingdom and knows what's best? In other words, I think we have an understanding of what we think is wise and good in this world and in our lives and what what should happen in our lives. But can we trust that, that the king actually gets to see the whole kingdom and knows what's ahead and knows better than we do, better than I do? Can you trust him? Can you follow him? Can, can you believe that the king holds the riches of wisdom and can be trusted to guide and protect his people? Right, like there's no denying that our lives get difficult at times. There are circumstances we have to face that we would never choose for ourselves. But can we trust that as we're walking through that, that season of our life, that section of our, our history, our lives, can we trust that, that Jesus is a wise king and knows what he's doing as we follow him through that time? Can, can you believe that we have a king that loves his people, loves his kingdom, and has sacrificed his very life to win it back? Think about that question. This is not a matter of me rationalizing you about the, with you about the life of Jesus, about how Jesus is a better option than some other world religion. I mean, that, that's, that to me is a matter that's solved. I've seen Jesus. I've seen what he can do. I've seen his prom, God's promises fulfilled in and through the life of Jesus. That's not a question that, I'm, that I wrestle with. The question that, that I think we, we all need to wrestle with is, can we follow him? Yeah, I know we can stand up in church on Sunday and say we do, sing songs of praise to him. But I think we struggle to follow. And it's not because Jesus is yoke is heavy and his burden is heavy and hard but because my heart is stubborn and hard and, and I want things the way I want things see this is, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ the son of God we have a king who we can entrust ourselves to we have a king who, who, who is able to lead us Through the valley of the shadow of death to green pastures beside quiet waters. He he is a king who has conquered sin and death. No matter what this world throws at us, none of it, none of it can defeat us. None of it can, can make evil win the day. You know, if you know the story of the Bible, then you know what happens to Israel after God leads them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the land that he promised them. As king, he doesn't abandon his people. His people abandon him. And in abandoning him, they rely on, they trust, they follow other kings, foreign kings, foreign gods, false idols, and things like that. And they find themselves in bondage and exile. Fast forward... To Babylon. And after Babylon, their disobedience leads to bondage to the Persians. And after the Persians, the Romans. Until God's anointed king, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, arrives on the shores of the Jordan River to finally and completely lead his people up out of slavery to sin and death and into the land of promise, the kingdom of God. This is the king that we're pressing on after. This is a king in whose arms we hear God say, as he promised long ago, comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has already received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So church, let's press on. Not let's just learn about the life of Jesus, In hearing about the life of Jesus, let's also hear the invitation to press in after him, to follow him, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week to ask ourselves, can I follow him? What's stopping me? What aspect of my heart do I need to surrender to God and say, this is why I struggle to follow you, God. Take it. Take, remove my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh that I might follow you, pursue after you persistently, passionately, day by day. Because we have a good king, church. King Jesus is here, now, not there, not in the past, not not one day in the future. He's come and he's on his throne. So church, let's, let's trust, obey, and worship this king. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your son Jesus. Father, I pray that you would expand our understanding of the magnitude, of the beauty, and the majesty of what kind of savior you sent us. He's more than just a compassionate friend. He's more than than, than a wise teacher or, or a generous rabbi. He's your chosen, anointed king who left heaven come live among us, to take on the, 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 the form of man and being obedient even to the point of death. This king, this king has won us back. He's redeemed his people. Teach us, Father, to follow Jesus on his way, on the way. May it be said of us that we are followers of Jesus on the way together this year as we persistently and passionately pursue Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.